Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And one of the only true things about George Santos is that he is now a sitting congressman. We're easing back in from our vacation schedule, and we have a fantastic show for you today. Historians Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer stop by to talk about their fantastic new book, Myth America. We talked to Kathleen Ballou, author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement, and Paramilitary America. But first, we have the legendary Democratic strategist and pod favorite, James Carville. Welcome to Fast Politics, James Carville. Oh, well, delighted to be here. I always love doing your pods. Well, thank you. Um, I had to talk to you because it just was like too insane. I mean... Is this disarray, James Carville? First thing, it was all a speculation of what the post-Trump Republican Party would look like. We now see it. (laughs) Welcome to the post-Trump Republican Party, which, if you think about it, Trump may be the adult in the room. (laughs) Unbelievable. These clowns thought like Brent Scowcroft, but, you know, Jim Baker were going to come walking through the door again. Well, guess what? (laughs) You know, it, it was really funny is you see what the Democrats had a four vote majority and what Nancy Pelosi did with it. Watch these people with a four vote majority and tell me which party is more disciplined or which party is more organized. So McCarthy didn't have the votes. This morning, everyone went down to a basement together to try to bully each other into getting the votes. The Republicans, they came up, they were even more pissed at McCarthy They gave speeches. 
Matt Gates is like, no way. Lauren Boebert, she says, I will only do this if there's a one person motion to vacate. Is there any historical precedent for having a speakership that hinges on one member of your insane caucus? Well, it came apart in 1923, and even I wasn't around in 1923. <laughs> I mean, I'm part of the historian of the House. It's really amazing the disintegration of the entire party. You know, we thought, I thought it'd just become like a personality cult. But now, Trump is gone, and I mean, he's done. I mean, it's, I'm very comfortable talking about him in the past tense. Yeah. But there's no underpinning of the Republican Party. And I grew up in politics. They were for lower taxes, less regulation, and strong national defense. Right. And it was just always the default position. They don't even pretend that anymore. A lot of a pro-Russia. In a sense that a political adherents or leaders of a political party and its followers ascribe to some philosophical underpinning other than just rage and resentment. It's just where they are. I mean, it's just a fact. I mean, I'm not, I'm not giving you democratic talking points. It's just... And everybody kind of knows it. Even the Republicans know it, but there's no way out of it. It seems like the House is in it much worse than the Senate. Like the House has, you know, they're a cult of personality without the personality. To some extent, that's correct. And, you know, McConnell has some leverage on discipline. Although, look at the the fight with, with him and Rick Scott. Generally, this has been a pretty well-disciplined political party. I mean, it was an old line, you heard it when you were younger, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Well, right. <laughs> I mean, it's. I think what's happened is the party has just disintegrated at warp speed. I just, I thought history had a kind of an arc. You had these things that happened and then over a period of time, and it went like a 180 degrees down. But, it didn't take much. But it does seem to me like McCarthy had decided to do the vote without knowing that he had the votes. I mean, that seems like an unforced error. Well, how could you not do the vote? You can't conduct business without a speaker. Right. You could wait until you had the votes. I mean, if you don't have the votes, right? Wait, what are you wait? How long can you wait? <laughs> do you think that these people are Andy Biggs or, or Lauren Boebert marginally interested in policy? No. They're loving this. I mean, all they care about is somebody social media follows, they have much money there, their fundraising is probably spiked. It doesn't even cross their mind. I mean, you definitely are seeing Democrats look pretty good in this whole thing, right? Even if you have... Well, yeah, compared to that. <laughs> right. I mean, but no, you have fractions. It's a big tent party. You have people in the Democratic Party who are more left and more right. Yeah. The Democrats are a coalition. And, you know, coalitions can be uncomfortable, but they're not a coalition. It used to be you had, you know, Main Street Republicans, and you had national security Republicans, and you had limited government Republicans, and you had low regulation. It's none of that. It's all in gone. It's all the past tense. You, you just have a, a party of deceiving resentment, and you're seeing the result of it. Do you think that this is because Republicans have been too interested in their base? You know, it's a base obsession. You understand what happened in the last election month. What caused the Republicans not to have the year that, that everybody was on fire saying they were going to have is Republicans. Right. I, I think that, that like 7% of self-identified Republicans voted Democratic, where 2% of self-identified Democrats voted Republican. And also, 
contrary to every historical precedent there was, independence broke for Democrats. They're, they're in a hamlock because they're based, they have to be fed a constant diet of stunts and resentments. If, if you think about it, what Republican policy has become, it's just stunts. Right. They're you know, sending migrants to Washington or, or Cape Cod or wherever they sent them, and this slavery, not teaching. Yeah, I mean, it's just one stunt after another. And the problem with being a party of stunts, you have to keep pulling off stunts. People need more. Then you run out of ideas, so you just keep doing crazy shit. It's just it's what it is. There's nothing at the bottom of the whole thing. That That's my point. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's right. And like in 2020, Republicans decided not to have a policy platform and that the policy platform was Trump. I mean, right? Right. And, and from there, they went from once, you know, to, uh, denying the election of January the 6th. You know, this is the January the 3rd insurrection that we're watching right now. <laughs> right. It's, right. It's true. It's nonviolent, but it's still violent, really. Right. There's no place they can go that they all kind of have some ideological commonality. There's just none of that anymore. I don't even know, you know, I'm hardly a scholar of the Republican Party, but, you know, you would have all this Ross Duhart and Brett Stevens and, you know, the post-Trump Republican Party. Well, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> but so here's a question. I mean, they can just keep voting forever. I mean, they can just keep voting until enough people fall out so that theoretically someone gets a speaker. I mean, there's another scenario where McCarthy doesn't get it. I mean, it seems like right now McCarthy and you had Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, Jewish, she's the moderate now. Right. She's whipping the vote, the Jewish space lasers woman. That's right. We Jews are very powerful. And Jim Jordan also is whipping votes for McCarthy. Right. Here's a man who, I think, eight Ohio State wrestlers said he knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. As they were being molested. So, I mean, really? I mean, Lauren Boebert? Yeah, was Google how, how Lauren met Jason. Right. Well, no. And Lauren Boebert, who barely won her reelection, she won by 700 points. I mean, when she's just enraged at McCarthy. But here's a question for you. Here's this House. It's a very slim majority. They won by winning these kind of purpley districts. If Republicans were focused, which I don't think they are, on reelection, on keeping the House, they would need to do popular legislation. But they don't have any popular legislation. <laughs> Think of George Santos, right? You're Jewish, I'm Catholic. We don't, we're not very much into God having kind of coded messengers. Right. But the evangelicals say, you know, James, God works in mysterious ways, and he sends messengers from periodically to express his pleasure or displeasure. And I think that God, you, you got to be understand, maybe they're right. And maybe God wanted to just demonstrate the utter rot that the modern Republican Party has become. And his messenger was George Santos, who a, a, a human could not think of a more perfect reflection of what that party has become than George Santos. Maybe they're right. You got to admit, he's, he's a messenger from some kind of divine origin, because a human couldn't make him up. I think that's right. I mean, we don't even know if his real name is George Santos. I've seen reporting that says he doesn't want to be called by that name. I don't know. Anything. I don't even know if he knows. I don't think that's his purpose. I think his purpose is to just demonstrate 
what this whole thing has become. He is he is the perfect modern Republican. Yeah. It really is. No, I think so, too. So now we are in this Republican Party. What should Democrats be doing right now? Well, the House Democrats, but exactly they should be doing, just vote for Hakeem. They have a four-vote majority. I don't think there's much legislatively that we're going to be able to get done. I would con- continue to support Ukraine with everything that we got. I think that's utterly essential, and I think it's one of the great foreign affairs opportunity we've had in God knows when. And how are you going to get into the headlines if they have to give up or you have a motion to vacate the speakership? But understand what that means. At any time, five Republicans can get rid of the speaker on a, on a whim because all the Democrats will go along with it. This is just keep pouring kerosene because they, they keep playing with matches. I mean, do you think there's a world in which these few moderates who want to get reelected go and, you know, eventually put themselves together with the... So, so McCarthy is not going to win the second vote. There's already, it's 78, McCarthy, 75, Jefferson, 10 others. Right. So unless they change... Now, if what they can do, as you're watching this, is they can abstain. Because right. you need a majority of those voting. You don't need 218. So I'm just watching, actually, I'm, I'm watching Fox because I figure if there's any breaking news, they'll get it first. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So we're going to watch this. This is going to come out tomorrow. We're going to have either a McCarthy speakership or a more likely protracted speakership battle that goes on. But nobody can do anything until there is a House speaker. But they don't do anything anyway. Right. And they're not going to pass anything that's going to pass the Senate. So at least we get some entertainment out of doing nothing. <laughs> it gives us something to do, and I can keep the screen out. I don't even need sound. So you think ultimately this is a popcorn situation for all parties involved? I think popcorn connotes that's, that you're enjoying it. I'm, I'm not sure that professional Republicans are terribly enjoying this. No, they're not. We are in this 118th Congress. They will eventually have to deal with, I guess they won't have to deal with the debt ceiling for a year, right? Yeah, I think it's September, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, for now, they can just fight with each other. They're not going to pass anything that'll pass the Senate. They're not going to pass anything that's going to get the president's signature. I mean, I'm, you know, of course, they can negotiate continuing resolutions and things like that because they, they, you know, and you got, I think it's 18, don't hold me to the exact thing, Republicans who represent districts that Biden carried. I, I, my guess is, and I'm not a very good seer or prognosticator of future polls, but I think the image of the party is going to have to take a hit here after whatever happens after this. And some of these people will start ditching them and they'll start blaming and pointing fingers and saying it's not my fault, it's their fault. That's what's going to happen. You were a big part of Clinton world. Are you surprised that there's been so much bipartisan legislation over the last two years? I'm surprised that people don't realize how much it is. But yeah, there has been. And, and let me say this, President Clinton, President Obama, they came in with huge majorities. Right? I think they did some, some remarkable things, that don't get me wrong. What's happened here under Biden with hardly any majority to speak of is pretty remarkable. And there is a certain segment of the Republicans that kind of like doing things, but there are not many of them in the House. <laughs> I think that bipartisanship is pretty interesting and almost surprising. You know, that, you know, we've seen an infrastructure bill. We've seen all of this, even like the CHIPS legislation. Ukraine funding. Right. 
defense of marriage. I mean, yes, but that remember, Democrats had a four vote majority, and you could pick, you know, some Republican right. senators wanted to go along with that. That's not the way the world exists now. Right. It'll be interesting to see. So, last thoughts. Here we are. We'll see how it plays out. I'm not going to ask you to predict. Molly, let's, let's, something innocuous. When's the last time you remember a knockdown, drag-out fight for a party chair? <laughs> even the last time you even remember an election right. for a party chair, all right? They're like killing each other over that. <laughs> right. Well, the RNC chair, I mean, you've got Rona McDaniel and, and the My Pillow guy is running. And there's somebody else. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting to me, though. They've lost three elections with Trump, and they're blaming everyone but Trump. They're just as stupid as they've ever been. <laughs> I've said it before, and I'll, I'll say it again. Maybe their problem is they have low-quality voters. And low-quality <laughs> voters are going to produce low-quality people that are going to produce low-quality events. Maybe that's the problem. I'm I'm serious. I'm leaving it there. These are not quality people that are deciding who these candidates are. I'm sorry. So you think that ultimately Republicans have a low-quality voter problem? I think Darian is the bug in in the process. (laughs) They got some really stupid people that vote in their primary. James Carvel, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Good deal, Molly. Okay. Come back soon. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well... 
not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz are the authors of Myth America, historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. Welcome to Fast Politics, Julian, and soon to be Kevin. It's great to be with you. Nice to speak. So talk to us about this book. You know, Kevin and I both have been following all the changes that take place in in politics and the media, and both of us were struck by how many things you hear about the past that just don't really fit with what historians have to say. Uh, So we just wanted to bring together a group of really good uh, academic historians who write well to write punchy, short essays tackling some of the myths that are so pervasive in our debates that influence how we deal with politics today. I want to know how you guys decided that you needed to write this book. Because there's so much misinformation, disinformation. Give me the story of what happened, because I feel like there's a great story of like a Ben Shapiro tweet or something. Oh, well, probably a million of them, actually. I mean, we had written another book together, you know, more of a full book that's become a textbook about the U.S. since 1974, so called Fault Lines, and, and we had worked on that. And then it was the year before the pandemic. I don't think there was a single tweet. I just thought... There was a lot going on already in terms of what's happening in the classroom and how you teach about race. There are so many arguments about government not working uh, that we heard all the time or that you'd see social media commentary on that both of us said, this is just ridiculous. Why not actually bring people who study this stuff and know about this stuff and have them 
chime in. We we're going to have a big conference, but we couldn't because it all happened right when COVID hit. So we just we did it virtually. Hi, Kevin. Hey, how you doing? Good. So we're talking about the book. It's called Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. What were the things where you're like, we're going to have to put this in the book? This kind of started out of Twitter, right? Yeah. For me, it was uh, the Southern strategy. So for uh, years on Twitter, I've been pushing back against people. First, Kanye West, and then Dinesh D'Souza, and a whole host of others, who somehow leaned into this idea that the Southern strategy, which has been kind of a mainstay of American political history for decades now, was an invention of liberals and a recent invention of liberals and something they just made up whole cloth. So it was a bizarre claim they made. And I started to push back on this on Twitter with threads. And as I did, I kept thinking, well, I know some giant books on this. There's a book by Merle Black and Earl Black called The Rise of Southern Republicans, which is great, but it's, you know, it's it's a brick. It's it's not a book you I would, you know, casually recommend to anyone. Uh, and I thought, well, somebody needs to write kind of a short version of this that that I can assign. And And like any professor who wishes someone had written the reading we want to assign, I just wound up writing it. So that was the starting point for me. And Julian had done stuff on the Reagan revolution. So that was a natural one for him. And then we looked around and thought, okay, we're doing this stuff on social media and op-eds and places like that. Who else is doing this? Right. And so some of the other contemporary debates about white backlash, about the insurrection, about voting rights, about Confederate memorials, you know, there were a bunch that came us, uh, came to us pretty quickly. Uh, and, and it seemed uh, right off the bat, that we had uh, a pretty good core group here. The hardest part for us, I'd say, was limiting this. You know, we could have gotten 50, 60 historians uh, uh, to do essays here. Uh, we had to kind of pick and choose uh, what we wanted to do. And the other, if I could just jump in, Molly, the other thing was that there were all these really interesting historians who were, you know, uh, trying their hand in the public realm through either Twitter or other forms of social media. And obviously, at some level, that's limited in terms of how much you can say. Part of what Kevin and I wanted to do was turn back to the traditional way we, we tell our stories and make our arguments, give these authors a little more room to expand on things that had really you know, popped on social media, uh, and to put it all together in, in this book. What is the stupidest thing you've had to debunk? Well, for me, I mean, look, I have a pet peeve. I, I don't mind debates about if, if it's good to have government intervention or not, and people have different perspectives. But I can't take when you hear over and over again how government is just a constant failure. And you always hear this about the great society, how it was catastrophic, it had unintended effects, didn't really do what it was supposed to do. Same with the New Deal. And that just doesn't square with everything we know from our best historians. And so I was very excited when we were able to include uh, two essays that uh, by um, Eric Rauschway and uh, Josh Zeitz that really just show this is, it's not true. And if you're going to have the debate, have the debate on real terms, uh, not on this false notion that these programs have no impact. Kevin, what about you? Yeah, those are the two big ones, uh, I think. I always laugh at people who argue that the New Deal was a colossal failure, which explains why FDR was elected four times. <laughs> I mean, for me personally, the, the, the stupidest one, and this is why I feel like my essay is the least imaginative one in the entire collection, I think, because I am simply responding to people who are saying, nah, <laughs> this thing didn't happen. And I have to kind of patiently go through and say, look, it really did. So it's just mine is really just a matter of correcting the record. So 
so that's about as stupid as it gets, uh, that people are denying that these basic facts actually happened. Yeah, that is a pretty interesting and also quite stupid. (laughs) Is this the book you want to read so that you can go to Christmas with your conservative relatives? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I think that's that's why we designed it. You know, uh, these are common myths that are out there in in the public uh, sphere. And a a lot of people have spent a lot of time spreading these falsehoods, whether they know their falsehoods or not. There's a, a big push to get these ideas out there and, and books and movies and, and, and certainly on social media and the web. And so people are going to encounter these things. And just like all of us uh, involved in the, in the project have done Twitter threads to help people, you know, we're not trying to convince the people we're arguing against, they're invested in this, but there are people on the sidelines who don't know any better, who hear someone say, oh, you know, the great society was a total failure or, or oh, feminism was anti-family and, and, and well, that, they haven't heard anything pushed back. And these are going to be convenient, small chapters that are going to be designed to be read easily by anyone who's not an expert, but who just wants to know the facts. And this is important stuff. I mean, we have one by Carol Anderson on voting fraud, who really shows uh, that a lot of this argument, which has big impact, I mean, it's been the basis of this idea, this idea there's massive voting fraud, been the basis of, of the election denialism and the effort to overthrow the election. And she just writes a really good piece, both debunking that, but also showing where the idea came from and how it's been deployed for decades, really going back through century to undercut voting rights. It's not simply conservative relatives. I think it's liberal, moderate relatives. Our goal is to push back against the disinformation era and simply be at these parties or be at dinners or wherever you are and just have uh, debates that are based on what we know about history rather than what we're just fabricating about the past. Do you think that, you know, some of these misconceptions are rooted in ignorance or dishonesty? I think both. There are clearly people out there who know what they are saying has been either disputed or they didn't even believe it to begin with. And I think there are bad actors out there who really don't care if it's true or not. And when they know something's not true, they're still putting it out there because it serves political purposes. And it's not really history. That's just pure propaganda. But I do think there are many other people. I don't know. I meet them all the time at these parties we're talking about or dinners who have heard stuff. And, and they've heard these arguments about history. And there's so much out there right now that it's easy for people who are well-intentioned to start saying things that are really at, at odds with what historians have worked on. I think you see this all the time in the debates about critical race theory and how to study um, the role of race in, in American history. A lot of what's being argued is it's actually kind of conventional at this point. You've had three or four decades where historians have been uncovering the different ways in which race has impacted uh, so many elements of American society from slavery forward. But sometimes if you if you look or hear from people, they're acting as this is some novel, radical idea that's just being thrown out into the public sphere uh, with no basis. But that's just not the case. And so I think it's a mix. It's It's dishonest players, but also people who have lost uh, some sense of, of where the historical research actually is. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a key point because it, it ultimately doesn't matter, right? Whether or not these lies are being intentionally spread or whether they're being spread by people who don't know any better, they're still being spread. 
right? They're still out there. And so we've got a duty to push back on them. That's really quite interesting and I think important. Is there anything that's surprising in this book? Well, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, because we wouldn't find it surprising, I think. Historians probably wouldn't find it surprising. There are a couple of things. I think we've got a couple pieces that are I think are going to be important and maybe push the envelope even for historians. So uh, Larry Glickman has a great piece on the white backlash. And this is a phrase that a lot of us, myself included, have used unquestioningly. And what Larry shows is that concept fundamentally gets it wrong, right? It presents the actions of the supposed backlash community. It, it's reactive. They didn't start anything. They're simply responding. They don't have agency. It just sort of happens, right? And so what Larry's essay does uh, is, I think, going to force not just lay readers, but historians, too, to, to rethink that. That said, a lot of the other stuff in here is very conventional for historians. Again, the stuff I have on the Southern Strategy, the stuff on the New Deal, the Great Society, the Reagan Revolution, these are all very conventional things for historians, but it seems like it's become a little more muddied in the public. So I think what surprises people will largely depend on what they're bringing to the book to begin with. So some things may surprise you, some things may may shock you. When I did the Southern Strategy piece, I found details of the story I hadn't even known before. So so I, I guess I learned some stuff even in writing it. So uh, maybe everyone will find something in here to, to be surprised by. And, and a couple others I just throw out there. Um, I think Kevin's 100% right. Um, but a couple others that I think come out in nice ways and surprising ways. So we have one essay called The Border by Jerry Cadova, and he argues that the border, which we all think of as now, it's become the image of a dangerous area, of a fraught area. These areas of the country also are often quite vibrant. There's all kinds of interesting elements of community, of commerce in these border towns. And I think the essay really challenges a fundamental myth that is at the basis of a lot of anti-immigration rhetoric. But the essay won't be the border that most people are thinking of. And Michael Kazin, another great historian, has a provocative piece about the ways in which socialism hasn't actually been absent from American political life, but it's it's been here for a long time, and it's impacted ideas that have been absorbed sometimes by the mainstream party. So I think there's some surprises there that will uh, at least force people to rethink a little of how, how they look backwards in time. So interesting. Thanks to you guys for coming on. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I know you. Our dear listeners are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at fastpoliticspod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's fastpoliticspod.com. is the author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. Welcome to Fast Politics, Kathleen. Thank you very much for having me. Let's first talk about this, and the title I think is amazing too, this crunchy to alt-right pipeline. The Paul Pelosi suspect may fall on that continuum, right? I think that's right. I think there's also a good chance that some of that is going on in the Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs, although it's still 
early days and getting details on either of those cases. But what we're talking about in this piece, and let me preface this by saying that alt-right should always go in quotation marks. It's a term that's somewhat outdated, but it is how it has entered our cultural conversation. So here we are with alt-right, and we can talk more about that. But the question is sort of about whether instead of existing on a political continuum that is a straight line that goes left, right, center, or excuse me, left, center, right, where the left is, say, Stalinist Russia, the middle is the United States, and the right is Germany in World War II. What if we think of it more as a circle where the left and the right extremes actually often have much more in common with each other than they do with the center? Right. Horseshoe theory, really. Yeah, sort of. I, I have some, you know, I'm, I'm a historian, so I have um, some itchiness about horseshoe theory. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I think horseshoe theory does a good job of showing how close the ends of the spectrum are to each other, but doesn't account for overlap. And what I see in the archive is actually quite a bit of overlap. So I'm a historian of the white power movement. My focus uh, in my first book was about the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And what you see in publications by skinhead groups, clan groups, militia groups, and particularly in women's publications are a whole bunch of social issues that we usually think of as leftist, like macrobiotic diet and uh, organic gardening, um, you know, in the 70s, organic gardening, right? midwifery, paganism, back to the land. So it's, it's an interesting thing to see this sort of crossover space. Oh, that is interesting. And it makes sense because like people like Alex Jones, you know, he's a survivalist too, right? Exactly. And there are some, you know, real time examples of people who used to be in the Occupy movement and have now taken root in the the militant right. I think the directional movement is less often the other direction, but it does also happen. And although these social issues mean something very different in each space, they are an area of possible recruitment. Now, I, I should also just clear the air a little bit. There was some concern by a few people who wrote to me after the Atlantic piece about this that I did, who were worried about like, are you calling all of the survivalist or back to the land left Nazis? And no, right. certainly not. What we are doing, though, is paying attention because this is a opportunistic white power and militant right movement. It is interested in any open window that it can exploit for its own purposes. And this is one of the ones that we should be paying attention to. I want to get back to this idea that there's sort of a connection between this sort of like left and right. Just can you go back historically and just sort of t talk me through like where this started? I mean, because you were starting that and I sort of interrupted you. Oh, no worries. Yes, sure. In my work, I'm looking at just the white power movement forward. So really, we're talking about a movement that brought together previously dispersed far right groups in the late 1970s into one movement, oriented them against the federal government and other parts of the state, and has been sort of engaged in a militant, asymmetrical war on the United States since then. So that's what I refer to as the white power movement. It has included Klan groups, neo-Nazi groups, militias, some militias, not all militias, um, skinheads and tax resistor groups and several others. But if we're thinking about the interface with sort of crunchy left and survivalist right, I think we can trace it back a great deal further than that. I mean, the Nazi party was very right. back to the land classically. And right, right, right. And 
several environmental groups in the United States, like the Sierra Club, have long histories of being being involved with eugenics and projects centered on whiteness in the United States. So interesting. Anti-vaxxers are a new group or are they were they always a group because there have been, you know, viruses and plagues and things like that throughout history. But it strikes me that the most recent sort of left to right conversion is is the COVID vaccine. I think so. And I think that that, um, I, that it's something that I noticed just casually in Facebook groups, even before that, around childhood vaccinations more broadly. And you get a sort of leftist crunchy discourse about spacing out childhood vaccinations right. or researching particular kinds of additives to childhood vaccinations and doing so often in in very little relation to scientific evidence. On the left, that has to do with like fear of chemicals and fear of toxicity, I think. And then on the right, we see that mobilized more as fear of the state, fear of conspiracy, fear of nefarious plots to control people. That one feels to me very much like how people talked about fluoride, the chemical added to water right, right, right. to uh, reduce dental de- decay in children. And the right has been very worried about fluoride for conspiracy reasons since at least the John Birch Society. And the left has been worried about it mostly because of toxicity. Yeah. Both parties are united by moronics. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there's a temptation to always say that it's worse now, that things are worse now. Are things worse now? Or do you think this is just sort of cyclical? Well, worse is an interesting question, because I think when we're talking about sort of cultural overlap, some of it is perfectly harmless. Some of it is simply, you know, people who have very different political ideas, but do share something else in common, which I don't know, in most contexts, I think is very good for our society. The problem is when, first of all, when the white power mobilization of these issues is attached to other recruitment actions, which it is very heavily right now, and when we're in the middle of sort of an upsurge in activity. So this seems quite innocuous. You know, I mean, vaccination is when we can see the obvious harm, but things like you know, choosing a midwife instead of a doctor, that is a perfectly valid decision that a whole lot of people make for totally benign reasons and often in in a perfectly reasonable critique of our healthcare system. And it can be a gateway to exposure to some of these activists. So the problem isn't choosing a midwife. The problem is coordinated efforts by white power groups to use interest in midwifery to recruit people into a movement that is in fact interested in extremely violent outcomes, um, including attacks on democracy, attacks on targeted communities, and attacks on several other sorts of infrastructure targets. So we have to read this whole sort of, I mean, this came up in the news cycle this time because of a TikTok debate, you know, which is, I mean, it's hard to think of something that feels less consequential than a TikTok feud, right? Right. But we have to read it connected to all of the other benchmarks of mobilization, like January 6th, Proud Boys showing up at local school board races, like the attacks on LGBTQ story hour, possibly the North Carolina infrastructure attack, although I think we're still early days there and finding out exactly what happened. But there's a lot of other activity right now. Right now, the speculation on North Carolina, can you just explain to our listeners what what this is all speculative right now, but just explain what it is? 
Yes, I'll tell you why I have my eyebrow raised proverbially as a historian, which is the white power movement has been interested in infrastructure attacks since the 1980s and has mobilized successfully to carry out cell-style terrorist attacks on infrastructure targets, both attempted attacks and real ones, for decades. So this is something they've talked about a lot. Um, That's piece of information A. Um, Piece of information B is that it's also something that comes up in books like The Turner Diaries, which is a novel that is also the manual of operations for the movement. So we have a record of them hitting or attempting to hit Targets like gas lines, dams and water installations, uh, water storage, power plants, nuclear plants, the list goes on. Most of these things didn't happen, but we have an archive of attempts that we have to look at next to the archive of successes. And then piece of information C is the nature of this particular outage. So the fact that it was power stations hit by gunfire, they found, I think, I read something about, you know, many rounds of ammunition from a high powered rifle, assault rifle, I think I read, Mm -hmm. at each of the sites. And the fact that they haven't come out and said like, oh, vandalism or, you know, something of that nature, but have instead called in the FBI and ATF, all of that together means that something is going on. So I don't know what the something is. There are certainly other people who might have an interest in damaging the power grid, but we know that this is a strategy that is part of sort of the playbook of the white power movement. So interesting. Do you want to talk to me about this hearing in 2019? Because Candace Owens is such an interesting... uh, Oh, yeah. I sort of don't even know what to make of her. Yeah. I mean, I know what she is, but I mean, I'm just curious, (laughs) like, what historical... Is there a place for her in his... Is there a sort of historical, yeah, reference for this? Oh, sure. I mean, I think, you know, I think she's a professional political operative who has her own very specific agenda and set of talking points that often has very little to do with what I would classify as factually based or the problem at hand. So I think in that hearing, it's one of several examples of not having the conversation we need to have desperately about a real problem that has a real body count attached. So, you know, not everyone wants to have that conversation. She's hardly alone there. The GOP has also diverted attention from this in all kinds of different ways, ranging from the early days, you know, sending around talking points memos about how the El Paso shooter, we should talk about it as mental health rather than white power. Yeah. Oh, interesting. All the way up to much more open embrace of these tactics, especially in the late Trump administration. So, you know, again, we're talking about a continuum of not confronting the problem. I mean, far be it for me to talk about intentionality. Maybe if we were to take her at her word, she was simply saying that there are other problems that impact the Black community more. I mean, I think there are ways that that's correct. There are big systemic problems that we have to deal with in this country. But what she's frankly just very, very wrong about is that this is also one of them. And it's impacting the Black community. It's impacting the Jewish community. It's impacting the Latinx community, immigrant communities. And it's now impacting our ability to hold free elections and have a democratic process. So I think it is a huge problem. I want to talk to you about the Buffalo shooter. 
I mean, that was a white nationalist shooting, right? Can you talk to us about that? Sure. So one of the things to understand about the white power movement is that it has, since 1983, used a strategy called leaderless resistance, which is simply cell-style terrorism. Right. The idea is that one or a few people can act in coordination and with impact from leadership, but without demonstrable ties to leaders or to other cells. So this was a strategy imagined to sort of foil the ability of FBI agents to infiltrate groups, which had been a big problem in the civil rights era, and to make it harder to prosecute, right? But the bigger impact is that we as a society have sort of bought this up as the way we understand this kind of violence. So we get over and over again stories about lone wolves, right? The lone wolf shooter, the lone shooter, the lone terrorist. There are individual acts of violence in our country. There are all kinds of mass shootings, and this is only one subset, right? But when it is a white nationalist action, it should never be treated as a lone wolf act because it is networked, it is ideological, and it's connected to other acts of violence. So this lone wolf thing is how we get stories about Buffalo as an anti-Black shooting, the Tree of Life as an anti-Jewish shooting, El Paso as an anti-Latinx shooting, Christchurch as an anti-Islamic shooting. We can go on and on. There's a lot of these. And they are all of those things. And of course, there are specific histories of anti-Semitism and anti-Black violence, and we can go on, right? But they're all also carried out by white power gunmen using the ideology of this movement. So for instance, in Buffalo, there was a manifesto, which I don't recommend people go and try to read and parse because we can leave that to people who study those kinds of documents. But if you take that manifesto and run it through a plagiarism software, which I have as a professor, (laughs) it's largely just cut and pasted from the Christchurch manifesto. So these are actions that share not only sort of like target selection, but they share tactical information, they share ideological information, and often they have social network ties with other people in the movement. So interesting. If you're talking to a legislator, what would you tell them is sort of the first thing that they need to get going on to to slow this down? Yeah, I mean, this is now, well, so the first thing I would say is there is some good news about that part. I think that our surveillance agencies have really changed their posture around the problem of white power and militant right violence. They have now said that this is the biggest domestic terror threat to the country. That means that all of the resources that come with that designation are pointed in the appropriate direction, right? Until there's a Republican president, right? Exactly. That's until there is a Republican president. But the thing is that we are incredibly late in doing that. Right. As I said, this has been amassing momentum since the late 1970s with very little stop. This is the movement that bombed the Oklahoma City Federal Building. And we should all pause and remember that after that, militia activity increased. It didn't decrease. Yeah. Just like Elon owning Twitter brought out more hate speech. I mean, they take every victory as a larger victory. Yeah, exactly. It's been gaining momentum. So the time is really short for dealing with this. So the thing that I think we need to do, and you know, 
I'm a historian. So every, you know, everything looks like a nail when you have a hammer, right? But I think that what we really need is a conversation about our national history of racism and racist violence. The United States is hardly alone in its history of racial injustice. There are many other countries that have similar stories, but we are very, very peculiar in how little we have done to actually face down that story. You know, if you think about it, even something like Make America Great Again, that is a historical argument, right? That's making an argument about time, about what is America, about what's included, about who's included, about whether it was great. Those arguments depend on people having a a degree of blankness about what the story is that we all share, that we all come from here. So I think that's a huge part. The other place I think we really need action is de-radicalization. It's incredibly difficult to scale. It really, I think, is working mostly on a one-to-one sort of model. And for that reason, I think that it would be much more helpful if I were a legislator, if I had a magic wand and a lot of money, upstream efforts like teaching kids civics, teaching kids what to do when they encounter white power content online, resources for school librarians and parents and teachers who are, you know, trying with both their hands to keep their kids from going to these websites. I think turning off the pipeline would really be helpful. And The research also shows that deplatforming, you know, I don't think the goal is to remove these actors from the internet. The internet is a wide, vast place. There will always be hate speech. Right. But removing the forum slows down the momentum. And that has a real results in how many people are hurt. Yeah, that's really a good point. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at VisitCalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.